more inclusive understanding of the word philanthropy and what that means for fundraising. Hi, I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and this is the first day with the Fundraising School, and I'm joined today by the Dean of the Indiana University Lilly Family School Philanthropy, Dr. Amir Pasek. And Dr. Pasek, along with our faculty, has an article in the Stanford Social Innovation Review uh, concerning this redefinition, this new understanding of this phrase, inclusive philanthropy. And Amir, uh, what are you meaning by that? What is inclusive philanthropy? I think it's philanthropy in short that seeks to reduce the, the distance between um, the helper and the beneficiary in many ways. In today's uh, media and newspapers, we're, we're fortunate to have so much attention on philanthropy, which I think is, is a wonderful thing, but it is often focused on the philanthropy of the very wealthy and um, what they are doing. And because most of us, the vast majority of us, do not have access to that kind of wealth, um, it creates a sense of there's a distance that the philanthropist is somebody who was in possession of great wealth, sits apart from the rest of us, and creates kind of a sense that philanthropy is the domain of exclusive engagement and people who have exclusive access to vast amounts of money. And so that, that was a, a sense that, you know, you needed a lot of money, plus that you were kind of removed from the folks who are in need. And so we wanted to show folks that philanthropy is many things and it can be very inclusive. And we thought that was particularly important and ended up being um, a really important um, feature to uh, highlight as we're all going through this global pandemic. And so first, uh, popular attention is often focused just on fundraising and charitable giving, especially amongst the wealthiest citizens. But the article points out that a broader understanding of philanthropy is better understood as generosity and volunteerism across the entire community. Could you amplify on that, please? Sure. As you know, at our school, we believe that everybody, and I think uh, people who study philanthropy realize it, that it's part of the human condition, and everybody has the capacity to be a philanthropist, uh, to act generously. So we, in the article, explored different ways in which everyday people participate in helping each other and helping those who are in need. And of course, at our school, we take great pride in providing data and providing research. And one of the challenges is some of these behaviors are formal, but many of them are informal. So how do we understand how much of this is happening? That's a great point, Bill, because sometimes we don't know how many people check in on their neighbor to see how they're doing, uh, bring them some food, uh, take them to the doctor. Um, we also don't know how many people uh, take public service jobs instead of more lucrative jobs. And that's something one of our co-authors and faculty spoke about, you know, the people who become uh, social workers or caregivers in variety of professions, they make that their life's calling. And we don't account for the fact that they uh, did not um, go for those very highly lucrative jobs. So there are many informal ways in which uh, people um, support each other. And some of the new technology is allowing even more of that kind of behavior to take place. Amir, in your initial comment, you, you mentioned the pandemic. Why is this topic important, especially during the world pandemic? Well, there are so many things that are happening and stressing our more formal institutions, and we have people uh, helping each other uh, 
we see the slogan, we're all in this together. And in, in, in a way, no matter how protected you think you are, privileged you are, you are still susceptible to this uh, you know, little virus that has upended our entire world. So there's a, a real sense that you know, this pandemic is emphasizing our common humanity and that um, there's a way that we can understand exactly why we are supporting each other. So instead of creating distance and exclusivity that I am the uh, I am the patron and you are the beneficiary and I'm in a different, uh, a different slice of society, a more elevated slice. It's creating the sense, I think, that we are in all in this emergency together and it's bringing us together closer in many ways, one hopes. The article in the Stanford Social Innovation Review does teach about this theme, about inclusive philanthropy, and then wonderfully offers some practical examples. And I want to ask you about at least a couple of those. One, for example, is U.S. federal tax policy, uh, that the way tax policy often is written up is exclusive, rewarding only some donors and not all donors. Can you help us understand that point, please? Yeah, so Professors Rooney and Wilhelm talk about the current, um, the most recent uh, tax um, reform law that took place and um, um, kind of increased the standard deduction so that very fewer people uh, were actually uh, incentivized to deduct their um, uh, contributions, which means that in, in the eyes of the government, and in this case, think of the government as our collective understanding of what's valuable for society as a whole has decided we have decided whether intentionally or not intentionally to remove um, many people from recognition um, the government does not recognize and count their um, donations because it doesn't come to that one level that is now being recognized at the uh, um, by the government so that that provides an important signal uh, to those of us who may not reach that particular threshold of being able to uh, deduct and claim all our gifts on our tax, form, tax forms. And by the way, fundraisers would be interested to note that if those federal tax policies were revised to more reflect this understanding of inclusive philanthropy, there's also the tangible prediction that uh, the number of donors would increase by 12%. And the amount of dollars donated would increase by $37 billion. So again, uh, it's this concept of inclusive philanthropy that's played out in a practicality, in this case, the federal tax code, that also could be of strong interest to fundraisers. And Amir, another aspect is social media. The article talks about how social media can democratize this understanding of philanthropy, can be more inclusive. What does that look like? Well, I think we, you know, as fundraisers, we all know that uh, the community is so important that peers are, play a big role in encouraging people uh, to give, whether the peers are doing the asking or uh, modeling the giving behavior. And social media is is offering these opportunities. So we have some examples in the article about uh, religious groups that are relying on social media to um, follow religious strictures and um, enable. Um, regular folks to kind of discuss with each other whether certain uh, causes are uh, religiously um, authorized rather than waiting for formal institutions to do that as well. We also see the uh, potential of technology bringing together giving circles, which is very important in this time of social distancing. We know that over the last several decades, giving circles have really expanded. And when people come together in communities to discuss their priorities and the causes that are important to them as a community, giving also increases. So that's something else that fundraisers should be aware of as well. And in these circumstances, our communities are 
mostly online. So that's another important, I think, insight for fundraisers as you look to the to to our current socially distant reality is how can you create communities online and engage people in communities that strengthens strengthens their affiliation to the cause that you are seeking to advance. And we've seen that from yesterday's ice bucket challenge to today's Giving Tuesday and activities and methods that haven't even been created yet that what can happen uniquely to be so inclusive and not just in terms of the giving of dollars, but in terms of volunteering and advocacy, again, in this broad understanding of inclusive philanthropy. And Amir, I, I need to ask you as well, the international context. You have so much international expertise. Our school takes great pride in serving the entire world uh, related to philanthropic studies and the implementation of philanthropy and best practices. What does this definition of inclusive philanthropy mean across the world for different countries, different cultures, different economies? How can we understand this definition in, in that context? Well, I think we try to uh, emphasize the human dimension and then the universal dimension of it. You know, we have such wonderfully robust data compared to other countries in the United States. We have this tax system that has been focused on uh, um, uh, um, the, the, the giving uh, of individuals and their tax deductibility and our foundation system for such a long time. We have a surfeit of, of information, whereas in other countries, um, there's not as much um, and data sometimes, and we're just in the process of gathering that data. So we tend to overlook the fact that there is helping behavior and uh, engagement with um, important causes outside of the market and outside of the government in every single uh, country in the world. So when we took, when we put on this inclusive um, uh, lens, we, we look for that kind of generosity and that kind of behavior in places where it's not the exact mirror of what we see in our own country, but look for it because we know it's likely to be there. So I think it's a way of really being more expansive in our understanding what counts as uh, philanthropy. It's not simply very large dollars from people who are kind of in an exclusive wealth category. It's something that each and every one of us can do it, whether it's with neighbors or strangers um, and uh, whether it's done with a lot of fanfare or, or very quietly. Amir, as, as we summarize here, uh, what advice would you have for fundraisers? Again, with, with so much of the attention focused on that person who can write the four figure, five, six, seven figure check and make the donation and and get all the headlines, but to, to have this expanded understanding of inclusive philanthropy and expanded understanding of the word generosity, that the most generous person might not be the person writing the big dollar amount check. It could be a, a much smaller dollar amount or no financial giving at all. It could be the volunteerism and advocacy and other philanthropic behaviors. What advice do you have for fundraisers as they move forward under this uh, new understanding of inclusive philanthropy? Well, I think what's, co what's going on uh, worldwide and we're becoming much more sensitive to the, the inequalities and the distances that we have created between ourselves and the enmity that comes from that. I think the inclusiveness also points to the fact that we want to include the people we're seeking to help in the decisions we make about how we want to help them so that we don't assume either because we, um, you know, we, we think we have more education or that we have more credentials that we know better what is good for the people we seek to help. So the important part of inclusiveness is also to shrink the social distance and also to ask the people you're trying to help 
you know, what is it that, you, that, that could be helpful to you? So I think that also um, requires us as fundraisers to also have more humility and not assume simply that we know exactly what the beneficiary needs, but include the beneficiary, the people who is the ultimate, um, uh, who will ultimately receive the, the, the fruit of the fundraising. What is it that they um, need help with? What are their ambitions so that we as intermediaries when we're fundraisers can convey, can create that connection between benefactor and beneficiary and to shrink that distance and ma to make the whole process much more inclusive. Dr. Amir Pasek is Dean of the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, where you can earn a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree in philanthropic studies. And this conversation gives you a peek into what those courses look like as you earn an academic degree from our school. Uh, in the academic programs, we don't teach the how, we explore the what and the why, and we examine big questions and big concepts like this to help prepare you for leadership in the philanthropic sector. And of course, in the fundraising school, then we do teach the how. We teach the how of fundraising, and we also teach the how of leading while fundraising with our certificate programs, the Certificate in Fundraising Management and the separate Certificate in Fundraising Leadership. All this information is available on our website at philanthropy.iupui.edu. I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and now you are now more fully informed on this first day from the fundraising school. Thank you.